big week, Joe. This is um, this is amazing. I, I'm I, this listeners. You were in for such a treat. You have no idea. Oh, <laughs> the quality of the conversation we just had. At least, at least from her end. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> she is amazing. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. No. Uh, it's, it's. I wish I were a Duke law student right now. <laughs> I wish I were a student back at law school, and I wish I were at Duke. Right. <laughs> oh my goodness. Uh, yeah. So amazing. Yeah. So in just in in, in just a few minutes, uh, listeners, you're going to hear the conversation that we had with Lisa Griffin from Duke about uh, um about about guilt and innocence and the way yeah. that we the way we find truth in trials, which is really really fascinating. But before we do that, there's another sense in which the week was big. Okay. Uh, and that's feedback record uh, amounts of feedback lots of feedback i don't know that we're even going to get through it all um yeah. let let me and if we don't we'll hold some over but but hopefully the feedback will come at such a continued avalanche that we just you know <laughs> right. eventually we'll have to do an all feedback show right um uh i wanted to say something right off the bat though that okay. i've been forgetting to say oh ooh, ooh. Uh, and this is a bit of feedback i don't know if you know this but we have um i would say the first yeah, I'm, I'm hesitating because what should have been the first citation to the show in published research, mm. but is it at least a citation to an idea that came up on the show? Sonia West article. I'm going to yeah. link it up in the in the show cool. notes. Uh, wonderful article about the press clause, which refers to our very first episode, mm. an idea about the uh, um, connecting the press clause with the establishment clause, and and uh, and the other thing that I'm going to do is uh, is in the show notes there. Include a suggested citation format for oh, oral nice. argument. That's helpful to people. Yeah, because people uh, already, and it will only happen more and more often, already <laughs> want to cite us, and so we ought to make it easy for them, right, to do so. Um, I, suggested cite, citation format. Cite, Thank uh, you. Cite us may go a little too far, but we do talk to some brilliant people on here who you may uh, want to cite. And by so, us, I mean the program, of course. And so I, I'll put the suggested citation format, which let me just say is going to be. Uh, uh, Joe Miller, comma, Christian Turner, comma, and then the name of the guest, but then put the name of the guest in alphabetical order, hmm. right, comma, oral argument, show number, colon, show title, comma, um, uh, timestamp, or in maybe in parentheses, timestamp, right, so, you, you know, minute right. 30 or whatever, you know, right, right. And, and, and then comma, available at, and then a link. Nice. I think this is uh, very straightforward. Very straightforward. That's how to cite how to cite a podcast. Um, Does but the anyway, blue book have a rule on citing podcasts? Yeah, I, I don't. I don't. I don't use the blue book. Okay. Do you? Uh, I do um, because it's the standard form of citation. Uh, and it, curiously, <laughs> uh, I wonder: Does it have a rule for podcasting? If it doesn't yet, it will. No, it, won't, it needs it now. Right. Right. And there's already there are plenty of court cases and journal articles that cite to. Uh, web available recordings of right. court oral arguments that right. happens all the time right so why not podcast yeah and i you know i believe in standards rather than rules for citation yeah you want you want clarity can someone yeah. find the thing cited that's right. the ultimate question right it's the ultimate acid test for right. citation do you do you have the reference in a way that is uh, uh, in a way that is pleasing, right, and and at least uniform enough so that it doesn't look like a mess and it doesn't distract yeah. attention from the article. So is it is it is the reference um, uh, used in a pleasing way, and can you find the thing? Right. And then within those constraints, have you minimized the amount of hassle involved in writing up citations? Right. And uh, I don't think the blue book succeeds there. Yeah. It's got it. It did in its day because see, in its day, of course, the blue book 
through italics and and underlining and and various and, and the play, way you do the commas and all that, um, the citation carried all kinds of metadata about whether this is a book, whether it's an right. article, whether it's this or that. And the only way to do that, of course, was through this stuff. Well, that, so anyway, uh, we we move beyond that. I think. Yeah. Well, that's another show. Let's get into the feedback. What do you got? Oh, an episode about the blue book that could be exciting. Yeah. Um, no, I meant that. I know, um, I know you were serious. That was, <laughs> that's, that's, that's what's so, what's so crazy. Um, so a bunch of feedback was aimed at uh, coffee and roasting your own coffee. We got some yeah. bunny weighed back in with mm-hmm. some helpful tips. Some So I don't know if you want to put in the show notes any of the pointers to some possible resources for people who are interested in exploring yeah. home roasting. Maybe, maybe not. I don't know if that's worth doing. But we, we enjoyed two more cups uh, uh, indeed. during this episode from, it, from it, Listener and, Bunny. Uh, and so it was great to get, um, you know, again, some pointers from Bunny. Also, listener Zachary weighed in, um, in addition to uh, thanking us and, and saying he enjoys the show, which is great. Uh, and he's a law student now. That's fun. Um, uh, he gives us a terrific idea for an episode about uh, law, the law library and law oh, librarians right. yes, and I remember the changing this, I remember nature of law librarianship. Right. And I think that would be, and again, I'm perfect, I mean this perfectly sincerely, I think that would be a wonderful discussion to have. Right. I would really love that. So thank you, listener Zachary, for that suggestion. Which is a broader suggestion really about like how we, you know, what, how should we kind of staff up the production of new knowledge? Like yeah. how do librarians help with that? What is their role? And the, right. the word librarian is almost, it's, it's almost a misnomer now, right? I mean, yes. Uh, but unless you have a broad conception of what a library but is. But in my right? mind, it's also like kind of a superhero word. Yeah. So it's so, um, and in fact, I think there's like a crazy show on TV now about yeah. librarians and being superheroes. Really? But, yeah, I think so. Um, but the, the point is, it's a really great, it, and we as lawyers and people who work, we are information workers, we are knowledge workers. Right. Uh, so, so of course, it hits us in a big way, um, but but it's a broader issue. Yeah, too. I'd love to do that just because I'm so terrible. I'm terrible at using <laughs> library resources. I really, right. really am. So having an information science person and a library science person to talk to us about that, we really need to do that. Yeah, we thanks, Zachary. That that's, a, that's a good so suggestion. Totally yeah. on, totally uh, hitting the bullseye with that suggestion. Yeah. And which, private lawyers, too. Yeah, uh, private lawyers, government lawyers, they they you know, everyone needs research and, and yeah. Um so and Zachary had some great coffee roasting coffee tips. We'll, as well. we'll maybe bundle those up with uh Bunny's right. um comments. Um now uh, in the show notes by the way, which you can see in your podcast app or you can go to our website, you know, hydrotex.com/oral-argument, but just google oral argument, you'll find us and right. and that's where you find show notes and all the old yeah. shows. Which are so you do such a great job of curating the show notes yeah, you really you put a lot of effort into it's up it. and they're down fantastic i think they're great a great resource so love on the show notes um the uh we got a note from listener russell and i actually this is the i think this is the only note i got but i did see it in a number of places so apparently um there's an app called ways this is oh, part of our I got a ongoing lot of fe- efforts yes. to... I, I got people contacting me about this too, and I don't have all their names in front of me. Okay, so, but, yeah. but this is uh, this is part of Speed Trap Law. Yes. The app called Waze yeah. um, is a social app that uh, involves uh, travel, road travel, and traffic conditions, and speed conditions, and such. And one of the things the Waze app lets you do is indicate where you have seen police. It's, it's right? like a social network combined with uh, Google Maps in a way. And I think Google acquired them, right? Yeah, I, mean, I and, think that might be right. Yeah. And anyway, 
So apparently there's a share. I mean, they don't use Google Maps to be clear. I'm sorry, but but it's it's basically a Google Maps idea. Like you know, it's a it's a yeah. it's a navigation program, but it's combined right. with a, an, a kind of an ersatz social network where where you are reporting on things. Yeah. Like you can send your speed. I don't think speed. it's ersatz. I think it is a genuine social network. I don't think it's fake. What I mean is um, that you don't friend people and everything. It just is coming. Yeah, right, I mean right. it's yeah. It's a so it's got a social engine in it for its information. It's, right. It's gathering information. It's aggregating information from its members. Right. Um traffic conditions and among other things indicating where police are monitoring a traveler's speed and and that in other words speed track and apparently a sheriff's organization has been lobbying to get wares to take out this functionality ways yeah and frankly ways sorry and um uh, um the the uh, some of the arguments these sheriffs have been making are are uh, strain credulity let us put it that way <laughs> Right. Um, but we can link to one of these stories because um, it's getting news coverage. The fact that the sheriff's groups are trying to get ways to take this functionality out of the app is now a subject of a bot, you know, a series of news stories. And people right. have been sending us links to that because we are the world's resource on speed trap law after all. Yeah, it's the foremost resource. Yeah, right. that's right. And um, and so this is if we wanted to have a slightly, you know, jerky formulation of it, we'd say this is the this is the 21st century version of flashing your lights. Yes. Flashing your lights on steroids on the internet. And one hopes that uh, people who use the Waze app are not trying to enter data into the Waze app while they are driving. Hmm. Like, wait till later. Because you need to focus on driving. Focus on driving. Or ask a passenger who's with you to help you by having them put in the data. That's right. Yeah. You need to drive and not jerk around. You know what I'm saying? You need I wish to you could focus see, on your driving. I, you've got that face on right now that I see very often, which <laughs> and usually, usually that it's followed by a string of obscenities directed yes. at me. Yes. And you have that on. You're very stern. So, listeners, don't don't test Joe if he sees you texting or or or, or you know screwing around with your phone in the car. He's yeah. you know you don't want the you don't want the the uh, me heaping invective on you. No, angry Joe. Uh, because I will. Oh no, I, no one doubts it. <laughs> <laughs> no, no one doubts your ability to he, uh, heap invective. Now, listener Stephen helpfully gave us some links to videos of Mike Tyson as a oh, boxer. Oh, yes, 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 yes. Um, proving my conjecture that people could engage in the profession of boxing without suffering any blows themselves, right? These are bouts where Tyson just, yeah. you know, totally decimated someone in like five seconds. Yeah, I, I, of course this happened. I don't know right. why. But you know what I was thinking about during that discussion? Right. This so was, you this were last skeptical week. of my supposition. No, but, no, no. Yeah. But I was thinking about, you know, that it was possible to go like 12 rounds without taking a blow, right? <laughs> I mean, it, it, and we were wondering, has that ever happened? But of course we're stupid. And it shows how much I don't follow boxing. That yeah, of, course, of course there are boxing, you know, bouts that have been decided in five seconds when right. someone lands a blow. So anyway, but yeah. No, yeah. listener Stephen also wants us to engage in some further debate about, um, marriage equality uh, uh pro and con oh i remember this one yeah um, no uh, no i want to disappoint Stephen by saying that i for one um will not argue against um m- marriage equality mm-hmm. um but um but but you might be willing to um what what we could certainly do he suggests one way to explore marriage equality would be to talk about um uh, why only two people in a marriage Uh, This is a question, by the way, that Senator Graham at the hearing the other day for the new attorney general, uh, Loretta Lynch, uh, asked if she could help him understand what if if um, if there's a constitutional right to marriage equality as it pertains to same sex marriage, why is there not a right to marriage equality as it as it pertains to three or more people being married? 
Yeah, and maybe this she demurred. Maybe part of this comes from I don't know if you remember one one message we had from listener Alan very early in the run of the show, back in the Halcyon days, mm. Joe of the early That's the early right. shows, um, was you know that we didn't argue enough, right? And <laughs> and I say that I think people like it when we argue, and and often no, they don't. <laughs> often, <laughs> oftentimes we do agree on stuff. Um, That's true. And, and 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 this this email may come out of that show that we did with uh, about um, um, uh, uh, Judge Sutton's opinion mm. um, upholding a gay marriage ban and and yeah, I because think, we both agreed with each other that that opinion was not all that no that it made some very very serious kinds of errors right. uh, I think and um, you know he's I think we both agree he's a very smart judge it's just that uh, there yes. were there were very serious flaws and not just points of disagreement but flaws and so um and by the way that would be true of even the best and smartest judges that they would on a in a given case on a given issue a judge could have terribly flawed reasoning right that doesn't diminish that person at all or their integrity or their professionalism or their great accomplishments it just means they're not perfect no one's perfect right and the, the 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 core idea of that opinion that that this is an issue that should be decided by the democratic by the elected branches or by the people right is is one you could debate right that's the, sure. you know, people can agree to disagree about what should be decided by courts and what should be decided by right. uh, it, it's it's the edifice it's the edifice he built on top of that intuition which was deeply flawed right <laughs> not not the fact that maybe you could argue that, right. that 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 the public should decide or at least you could hold that view um and ultimately, you know, we, I don't know. I don't know what else I have to say about that. I feel like after we've done that, you know, anything that we do further on it is just going to be punditry. You know what I mean? Right. Well, look, I think after you and I have talked about this uh, privately a few times, I, you know, I think after the oral argument uh, in the marriage quality case, which is now going to happen at the end right. of the term, uh, maybe after the oral argument, um, before the courts reached a decision, we it might be worth talking about yeah. how the lawyers argued the case. Right. Uh, and it, and of course, doing that before you see how the court itself synthesized the, the inputs to come right. up with an output of the opinion, that's that's the right time to do that before yeah. you see what they actually do with it. Uh, but maybe instead, we just wait till the court issues a decision and maybe there there'll be some interesting things to talk about uh, because there are so many other issues now in the queue socially and legally um, that turn on how the court analyzes this right. question. Actually, no matter how it comes out, right? Uh, the analysis will because there are all these other things now. But what we can look um, at though, maybe maybe there is an issue about which we can take the pro and con, regardless of our views. Either it's something we don't really, right. you know, and, and and that might be a fun exercise, just in totally. advocacy. It's not necessarily my specialty, but um, right. but it's something that we could uh, maybe do. But I, I'm sure that we will find things to disagree about in the future, undoubtedly. Uh, and there's uh, and with this one, I'm already I already feel like I've got kind of a. A view of it which recognizes the potential for opposition from the other side, right? Sure. Which is that this is essentially at its core, as most such issues are, a political decision where the reasons supporting the view on the other side have become unavailable because of political agreement, right? That, in other words, the the, the kinds of reasons you would give to uphold a gay marriage ban as a court, the kind of reasons the court did give back uh, in in Bowers versus Hardwick to uphold right. a criminal ban on on gay sex. Uh, that all those arguments are unavailable because of political consensus now, right? And uh, increasingly unavailable. Increasingly, yes. you're right. And I perhaps, mean, and perhaps, una- irretrievably unavailable now. Which is why Judge Sutton did not make them, and he tried other arguments that right. did not work. Right. The yeah. only arguments that work are arguments that 
really aren't made in polite company. I think yeah. I mean, these days, right? Agreed. Increasingly in the same way that you can't like an argument against uh, uh, an argument for an inter an interracial marriage ban. Um, it's not that you can't come up with arguments or that you can't have political views about that, but they are viewed as uh, anathema to civilized right. society now yes. in a way that they were not Correct. You know, just before we were born. Right. Uh, anyway. So it is a, yeah, interesting. Yeah. More, more will, more will happen, but that, uh, and, and you and I will disagree about many things. In the years to come, I look forward to it. In fact, I don't look forward to it. It's how I will know I am alive that I am disagreeing <laughs> with you. About um, uh, so, the, so don't fear, listeners. There, there will be plenty of that. Um, and and then uh, uh, I was going to say, including in our super secret new podcast project. Yes. Okay. So uh, our last bit of feedback. Okay. Uh, listener anonymous. Okay. Whoa. Um, last, <laughs> right. Last name withheld. Yeah. Uh, and first name withheld. Listener anonymous. Um, I doubt their first name is actually anonymous. Well, you um, never know. Uh, reassures us. Hey, we'll get our first North Dakota download soon. I'm skeptical, but that's nice reassurance. Um, <laughs> it has then, not happened yet. Hmm? It has not happened yet. No. I can report. Right. Um, it, but, but also uh, expresses the wish and the hope that... Uh, you know, we will talk some point about how law school changed the way we think about things, uh, other ways it may have changed us. Uh, you know, be, becoming a lawyer is a is a change process and uh, a, in on many levels. Becoming it's, anything is. That's the nature well, of the course. word even becoming. Um, right? So so talking about what becoming a lawyer, how it changes the way you think and speak. Um, you know, that could be a really fun topic to explore. Have we talked about this or alluded? To, I feel like there was a there was a a period of a few shows way back, maybe in the teens somewhere where like, maybe, I, like, maybe it was about like my math lost. I don't remember, but it feels like we talked about that. I mean, I got to find a better way to index these shows. And yeah. Everything. Yeah. It's, it's getting to be time where we need to, cause there's so many of them now. Yeah. And people need to be able to find in order to cite it. Right. You need to be able to find it. They, they, we, yeah. they need more than merely a helpful citation form. Right. They need to be able to find the substance. Yeah. But I, I think Listener Anonymous has a great idea for a show, though. I think uh, yeah. the process of law school, you know, maybe we can even talk to some law students and some recent grads oh, and some yeah. longtime grads. I mean, maybe right. maybe even a serial-like show where we we look at the, I, I was about to say cradle to grave, but it seems a little bit grim. It <laughs> <laughs> does seem a little grim. But what, to be born into law school and then to mature and then to become a lawyer is there you know that process is not the same for everybody no. i don't want but we could at least maybe but we could talk a little bit about our stories and, and yeah talk exactly talk to some other people and, yeah. yeah i think it's cool. a great idea i think it's a great idea so so just a wealth of feedback uh, let's bask in the wealth of the generosity there's probably the more that we're forgetting too i mean that i i i feel like there's more there's always more well um these are the emails that i i try to keep fairly good uh curation of the emails that we get but i might have slipped some how how do other people get in touch with us in order to make us feel justified in in doing these shows every week oral argument podcast at gmail.com now let me ask you a question joe yes is there any funny business in that first there's part no, there's not the slightest bit of funny business it's all oral argument podcast at gmail.com all right no it how many asterisks are in there None. None. Uh, any yeah. smiley faces or, no. at, you know, n- nothing like that. No none dots. Of that, none of that balderdash. No dots, no colons, no nothing. So it's all one word, oral argument podcast at gmail.com. Right. Oh, that's, yeah. No funny business. You're right. Yeah. You're right. Totally uh, awesome. Twitter, oral argument. We're at oral argument at Twitter. Follow us there and you can like us on, on Facebook and, um, you know, we will not add to your 
informational detritus. We we <laughs> we keep it crisp and to the point, but it's a good way to get in touch with us and to find out about things. Like when we did our serial call-in show about which, you know, today is kind of a continued exploration of the same ideas. Right. Uh, we got in touch with people on on Facebook and Twitter and let them know, and and that's how a, a few listeners right. agreed to come on the show. Yeah, so, we lo- and this feedback. I mean, uh, I I love it. It really does. It really is the fuel in the engine that helps the show run. It's, yeah, because we know that people. You know, it helps us know that not only are people downloading the show, but they're thinking about it and they're getting something from it. You know, and they're then taking giving it, making us it their new own. ideas exactly. to think about, like yeah. helping us see new things. Yeah, that's really great. Yeah, makes you feel like it's worthwhile, doesn't it? Totally. You know what else makes you feel like it's worthwhile? Uh, what? Uh, just how awesome our guest is this week. Oh, she, her awesomeness bends space time. <laughs> it like, you can just feel is, the universe. It's like watching, it's that like, that may be too much. No, 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 no. It's like, it's, it's, it's like watching the matrix. You like, it, you know, at the end when he's like flexing his arms and it's like, and like <laughs> space time bends toward him. It's amazing. Well, I, 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 this is, this is, yeah, this is, this is true. But, um, I have to say that, um, because we are all made of massive particles, space-time bends toward all of us, Joe. Yeah, that's that's the even freakier thing. Yeah, she notices she bends it in a noticeable way. Everything is pulling on everything else in the universe. Ugh, I know, I know. But I just blew your mind. You really? <laughs> I, I think I need to go home and take a nap. <laughs> okay. Well, with that, let's uh, let's get on with the show. Christian? Yeah, Lisa. This is Christian. Well, Lisa, thank you for joining. This is Joe, by the way. Thanks for joining us. We really appreciate it. Hi, Joe. It's fun to talk to you guys. Um, uh, you, you are our second um, uh, Duke person, I think, that we've had on the show. Oh, Kim Kravick. Right. So, right. Yes. Yeah. My colleague Kim was on your show, too. Probably about um, the cost of organ donation. That, that's, <laughs> that's, ex- that's exactly right. Taboo, taboo trade type stuff. And, yes. Uh, and she's, she's terrific. Um, and I guess I also she know uh, Jedediah Purdy there at Duke. So uh, you got a lot of great people there. You should have Jed on too. He I, can talk about all kinds of interesting things. I, I would love to have Jed on. He's he's. I consider him a friend, but um, you know, he may be too big for us. <laughs> <laughs> he's got an open invitation, Jed. Anytime you want to li- uh, come on, we're happy to have you. That, that's true. He does have an open invitation. Um, the I lovely thing about Jed is that he is big without thinking that he is. So I'm sure he'd appreciate the invitation. That's exactly right. Yeah. Yeah. What a great guy. Um, well, I don't know. Uh, I guess you and Joe communicated about some of the things that we've been talking about on here for the past. Uh, I don't know. We, we did a show about the serial podcast, which, um, you know, we, we had people call in and we kind of explored the idea of guilt and innocence in, in that context. And then we did another show uh, with just uh, Joe and me responding um, to some feedback. Um, from um, uh, uh, Nicholas Georgiakopoulos uh, on the standard for reasonable doubt, and we did some thinking about that on there. And um, and 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 in the course of doing that, you know, I was thinking, God, we should get someone on who can kind of think more with us about the philosophy and theory of of probability and its role in in trial and adjudicating truth. And um, and, and boy, you know, you were the person for that, I think. Um, and uh, so we were, especially hoping- given the the like the power of narrative and storytelling as an alternative way to think about what's happening at trial and what your paper you know helpfully like i stumbled sideways into some of that narrative stuff in our prior conversations right and and this wonderful paper of lisa's kind of 
I actually had read some of that stuff back in the day and forgotten about it. And right. so I feel bad that I was like in a very clumsy way, sideways, knocking into uh, Pennington and Hasty and the storytelling model of trial. And um, and so I'm glad to have the opportunity to uh, read a, a, a sort of rigorous and insightful discussion about it and remind me about it and then even go further and improve on it. So this is great. Yeah. And just to add to Thank where you. just to add to where we're coming from. I mean, I think in, in those shows. Uh, I kind of stumbled all over like a bull in a china shop over these ideas, too. And it was great to read your paper. Partly, but uh, my intuition in those shows about like what went wrong with uh, what went wrong with the serial prosecution um, of Adnan. And, you know, whether you know anything about that or not, it's not particularly relevant. But um, uh, but in general, you know, with the idea of wrongful, wrongful convictions and the sacrifice that we essentially make kind of wrongful convicted people uh, suffer on behalf of the rest of us. Um, you know, my my, my thought was that there was um, a, a guilty verdict which doesn't seem to make sense in the context of probability. My sense was that usually represented almost a failure of imagination, right? That um, it, a failure to appreciate the plausible stories um, which were inconsistent with guilt. And somehow the but jury... But consistent had, with the evidence. But consistent with the evidence, right? Yeah. In other words, a plausible narrative given the evidence, right? And, and so I, I, was, I was kind of stumbling around in my own thoughts about the fact that, yes, what is happening is that people are forming, jurors are hearing evidence and forming stories and multiple possible stories. And, 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 and your paper, you know, takes that to the, to the next level. Do you want to, um, I don't know if you want to react to any of that or to, or to tell us a little bit about, uh, about your work in this area or, or what, but um, that's where we're coming from. Well, sure. Um, I think that the, the, your interest in serial is, in, it was intriguing to me when you first raised the possibility of this discussion. I confess that, uh, while aware of the phenomenon of serial, I <laughs> had not listened to it in its entirety. I discovered, though, that a lot of my students are avid listeners and, um, had some discussions with them that were really helpful about why it became so popular and what was so compelling about it. And it's become a really useful tool for me because I've begun to think of it as an illustration of some of the problems with narrative and also of the nature of narrative itself. It's such an interesting and in many ways unique exercise because it has two layers of decision-making under uncertainty. It's what's going on in the underlying criminal case. And then now you hear Sarah Granick's voice as she approaches the story herself and experiences some uncertainty and goes back and forth in terms of her view of the case. So it's almost like a, a model of different sorts of decision-making, including things like Bayesian updating. Some of the ways in which my students described their experience of listening to the podcast reminded me of Bayesian updating. And I thought that the appeal of it must just be that it's so uh, it's such an organic experience of what it's like to engage in that sort of fact finding. And so many listeners ended up in an uncertain place. Um, and you can be uncertain about the factual truth of what happened and the murkiness of the story and still adhere strongly to the view that the legal truth should have been a not guilty verdict. But even that realization, I think, was meaningful to a lot of people. So I'm intrigued by the popularity of the podcast itself. And I, I think it does illustrate a lot of these ongoing problems with the intersection between narrative and probability. And I think some longstanding misperceptions about what exactly it is that fact finders do in criminal adjudication. And, and yeah, one of the things that there's so much to think about in what you just said that just the number of narratives flowing back and forth stemming out of that 
show is 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 remarkable, right? Because the listener thinks about you know what it would be like to a ju- you know the listener thinks in part about what it would be like to be a juror and to assemble the narratives from tri- from uh, the trial and did the did the jurors assemble the right narrative? Did they consider the right things? And of course, the whole time you're also thinking about well, did he actually do it? You know what what is the story that I actually believe? And then what is the story the jurors should have assembled? And then what is my story about? about telling these stories, right? There's almost a meta-narrative about, totally. you know... Uh, what is it like to be a prosecutor? Because sometimes what she does, Sarah Koenig does is uh, she relates arguments that the prosecutor made at various stages, whether it's a bail hearing or something. So you have narratives about what is it like to prosecute a case? What is it like to be a policeman investigating a case? Um, so yeah, the narratives kind of pile up, the stories about stories about stories. And, and just to bring it back to to your work, um, uh, Lisa, the... Uh, you know, you just, I, I feel like the piece, I hate to use the phrase take seriously, but I mean, you, you kind of focus heavily on the idea and, and reinforce the idea and then take it to the next level that when jurors hear a case, you know, they're human beings hearing things. They're not, they're not computers, which are constantly performing Bayesian calculations. You know, this is like, what is the probability of guilt given, you know, the, the last piece of evidence I heard. And that kind of updates all the other pieces of evidences of evidence that I've heard. In fact, what jurors are doing is they uh, are assembling a story that makes sense, uh, that kind of that fits with the evidence. Um, but those stories have all kinds of other inputs as well. You know, they're they're uh, as you point out in the piece, they're um, how it fits with all the other narratives that they've heard. Some of which are true, and some of which are fictional. Right. So, uh, is there a stock character who's been presented to me uh, on the witness stand, and then maybe I will attribute not only the the things that that person said, but also all the other things about such stock characters that I've appreciated from literature. And uh, so there are all kinds of, uh, maybe it's very natural that people assemble these narratives, but there are also all kinds of problems that occur uh, based on this mode of decision-making, right? Do, do I have kind of the thrust of it right? Or I think uh, that you do. I think the other piece of it is that, um, well, there are two parts to what you just said. So I think it's important to recognize that there's no sense in which narrative itself is pernicious or um, it, causing error. It's the way that the process interacts with narrative. Narrative is inevitable, and it's it's in trials. It's part of decision-making. It's the way that people enter the world in all sorts of settings. And there's no sense in which doing away with narrative uh, would necessarily be either possible or achieve greater accuracy. I, my goal in the piece was to suggest that it's not pure narrative what occurs at trial. It's a hybrid with um, interstitial, more rational and analytic decision-making, and that there are parts of the process that can encourage that sort of thinking and in doing so mitigate the problems with narrative. So narrative itself isn't problematic, but it has elements that when they interact with certain kinds of trials become really problematic. The expectations that it creates for things to unfold in sequence and for details to be significant, um, for narratives to be coherent and end with a certain kind of closure. And there are legions of cases that illustrate even really simple cases um, and then more complex ones like the one that formed the basis for Serial that illustrate how murky real facts are and real human behavior and the truth is this fluid thing. It's non-linear. And um, because it's so murky, the effort to apply stock characters and 
preconceptual paradigms uh, to what happens between people can lead jurors astray. It won't necessarily do so, but in certain kinds of cases, it does. Would you mind, I mean, because I think, um, uh, you know, a specific example will help the listeners appreciate what we mean by assembling stories and all this. I I was going to ask about the the story with which she opens the piece. Yes, and I but but right before we do okay. that, if if just I want just want to report that what's so fun for me about this discussion is when I came to her, uh, Lisa's paper, it was very much from the opposite point of view of, you know, to me the conversations that you and I had Christian were were really made vivid for me the perils of thinking about things like probabilities and talking to people in those more analytically rigorous terms. Like, yeah. I felt like that rhetoric just discombobulates people. So I was all about, you know, the power of narrative and embracing <laughs> narrative and that being awesome and fantastic, right? Right. And, and it, Lisa's paper, I think, is great because it says, uh, you know, that we need to be skeptical. Nar- you can have runaway narrative every bit as much as you can have discombobulated probabilism. Yeah. And, and, and we got to a little bit of that, too, by, we by talking about how, the, you know, the nar- to a narrative method of ascertaining truth. In other words, the, you know, telling a story and asking whether it fits depends on the idea that you have the imagination required to reach right. the story that really happened. And of course, that's not going to be the case, especially if it's a, a jury who has no idea what typical narratives operate in the lives of the people that they're adjudicating. So this is like the, the wealthy, a, a group of wealthy whites trying to uh, assemble a story about, um, um, you know, in the, like the 80s, inner city crack epidemic i mean you know that they just don't even know what it's like right to, so so that's just another to go for experience. But, but it was it's just it just it's an enrich it was what's especially enriching about the paper for me is it, that i experienced it as someone who came to it not as a skeptic of narrative but as a skeptic of 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 um an, analytical uh, probability and so that was a great thing for me to read a paper that that at least strikes me as being much more skeptical about narrative than I was when I got to the yeah. paper and how to merge the two. Yeah, right. how to synthesize right, them in right. a way that's really effective and productive. So well, that was just super. Well, Lisa, I, Lisa, would you? Well, go ahead. But I was going to ask if you mind telling the story. You know, I will. I will yeah. tell you about Julie Jensen and Mark Jensen in just a second. But I want to uh, respond to one thing that you said, which is that um, I think imagination is the right word, but I don't think imagination is what narrative is, actually. I think expectation is created by narrative. Um, imagination strikes me as really valuable. It um, is, I think, what when people talk about legal empathy, um, which has become a very loaded term, I actually think that imagination is what they mean. And I think it's the ability to see a story that is apart from your experience and um, maybe even to think about what it might be to be in someone else's shoes in the you know, case of the serial prosecution, in the case of the Jensen. These are, these are problems that are removed from most people's ordinary experiences, just like being able to see what it's like to be a suspect in the back of a police car is removed from the ordinary experience of judges and Supreme Court justices. But some judges and justices do manage to have what is sometimes termed legal empathy when they evaluate that that case and the standards that should apply to it. And I'm working on another project, which is about that, which says that legal empathy is different from things like medical empathy, where there's so much focus on being able to you know, sort of feel things and experience things. I think legal empathy is imagination. I think right. it is about being able to see other things. It's seeing and not feeling. Narrative is different because it's emotional and you do feel things and it enacts expectations 
So I want to separate the two ideas, imagination and expectation. I think imagination is all to the good when it comes to legal decision-making. If you think of it as a more rigorous thing than this sort of preconceptual expectation you have that comes from narrative schemes. So those, those two things are different for me. And um, Well, let me ask you, so I, I'm going to be sure I'm clear. So the, the way I'm thinking of, of imagination is that uh, you know, at the beginning of a trial, uh, the jury comes into the box and there are, you know, not literally, but figuratively, an infinity of possible narratives that could fit before the first word at trial is spoken, right? And then every word at trial which is spoken and every visual that they see uh, kind of constrains the field of possible narratives, right? And um, and imagination for me is the the jury being able to... Um, to see possible narratives that fit the facts, which go beyond the evidence that they hear, right? But it's uh, being able to tell the story about, you know, uh, this the way this person acted um, could be in uh, manner X rather than manner Y. But if you didn't have the, ma- the imagination to see that they could have acted in manner X because you don't have any experience with it or you just lack the imagination, you'll never see that. And um, uh, But I, I take it that you use expectation to mean that narratives kind of tell the full story that fill in the gaps between the discrete facts that we know for sure and that that narrative tends to fill in a way which is expected in other words given all these facts what do we expect all of the gaps to to be like and so i don't see those two as intention i see them expectation and imagination to point pointing to kind of two different functions or, or two different attributes of the construction of narrative um but maybe i'm not getting the sense that you I like I I agree with you, and I like that idea a lot. I I think that the difference is that imagination allows you to see something that you never thought about before or viewed as possible. Just I've revealed already my basic ignorance of the underlying case in serial, but I do know about the characters um, because of the generosity of my students. And um, my understanding is that one thing that was a little bit hard for um, you know both the narrator in serial, but for Sarkanic and for the listeners and for the jurors all to understand is the relationship between the defendant and the witness. I think his name is Jay, who was involved in helping to dispose of the body. Correct me where I go wrong here. No, that's, that's right. And there was there was a, the description of that relationship as though um, this individual is sort of the person you go talk to when you have some need um, that is, uh, you know, in, in the, the sort of the the criminal element or the passports to the to the underworld um, right. in this particular community. And um, for a lot of people, that that was a concept that really hadn't occurred to them. Not everyone has such a passport in their experience. And it takes imagination to be able to accept that that's a reasonable explanation of a relationship that otherwise is suspect. If your expectation is that you only engage with such people if you're involved in something nefarious, that's where narrative kicks in and maybe creates some distortions in decision-making. Does that make sense in yeah, that context? Yeah, that makes sense in that context. Why don't we talk about it in the in the context of the of, of the situation with which you open the paper, which is a fascinating case, which has uh, which requires kind of different leaps of imagination, maybe to construct narratives than does uh, kind of there are kind of cultural distinctions and everything at issue in serial. But um, yeah, it's yeah. it's it is. You're right. I mean, it it is um, in some ways a narrower 
you need a, it's, it's a, has a narrower focus to it in terms of the problems that occurred in the case. And of course, Mark Jensen has now uh, gotten a new trial. Um, it took place in uh, Wisconsin, and the story is about Mark and Julie Jensen. There was a 2008 trial of Mark Jensen for the murder of his wife, Julie. And um, she died uh, 10 years before that in 1998 at, at home in Wisconsin. They had been married uh, for 14 years, and they had two young sons. And um, there were problems in their marriage and in their relationship, of which many people of their acquaintance were aware. They each had had affairs, um, and the case was at first treated as a suicide because it appeared that Julie had taken her own life. It took a very long time to work through all the toxicology in the case, but the tissue samples examined years after her death um, eventually established that it was caused by the ingestion of antifreeze, um, it's a poisonous substance known as ethylene glycol, um, commonly found in you know, antifreeze that you can purchase over the counter. And um, that led to further analysis of the computers in the Jensen home, which were used almost exclusively by Mark Jensen. And he had sought information about uh, hidden methods of poisoning in, in his searches included some hits on antifreeze. So things began to, to turn against Mark around this point in the investigation. His email correspondence also revealed that he had been engaged in an affair um, at the time of her death. And uh, he we later married the girlfriend with whom he was having an affair at the time. So four years after her death, um, he was charged with first degree murder and he was convicted at trial. And there were these compelling competing narratives at trial. Um, her personal story is very tragic and involves um, some suicide and um, some deaths under suspicious circumstances in her family. And she was struggling with depression and had a history of some emotional disturbance. And her family's narrative is that she was caught up in an abusive relationship with Mark um, and that she would not have killed herself and did not kill herself because of her great love for her young sons and instead that he had staged her death to look like a suicide so that he could um, move on with his life and um, marry the woman with whom he was having an affair. So it's there are these dueling narratives and the, the jury settled on Julie's narrative in large part because there was a letter that she had left. This is a classic tale of a, a letter from the grave, the letter that the victim gives to someone right before her death and in which and she says, if anything happens to me, um, someone should open this up. So um, there was a letter that she had written and given to her neighbor 10 days before her death. Um, and the neighbor was instructed to deliver it to the police if anything happened to her. And in that letter, um, she identified her husband, Mark, as the, the suspect, uh, should anything happen to her. Um, the, the murky details include the fact that she wanted to point law enforcement in the direction of his internet use. She identified him as an avid internet user in the letter, and she made a point of detailing the medicines that she was taking um, and the things that you know, some would say to exclude the possibility that she commits suicide and to also point in the direction of other substances. Um, she specifically disavows any suicidal tendencies in the letter and talks about her love for her sons. 
And of course, the the court got tangled up in the confrontation clause debate because the letter was admitted into evidence, but Julie's not available for cross-examination. And under the reinvigorated version of the confrontation clause, subsequent to the Crawford decision at the Supreme Court, it shouldn't have been admitted into evidence. And just for the listeners, I mean, this is the, the right in the Constitution to confront the witnesses against you. Right. Yes, it's yeah. the Sixth Amendment right to confront yeah. witnesses against you. And um, the court had a very creative theory about how this might be considered a dying declaration, because even though it didn't immediately precede her death, she intended it as her last words and would have been under that hush of impending death that we think gives dying declarations as some accuracy and authenticity. But um, most commentators consider that theory not to work with the case of a letter written um, 10 days before her death. And um, it, it ran, it ran afoul of the confrontation clause and probably should not have been admitted. And jurors ended up calling it in their own words, a roadmap to conviction because having this letter enabled them to choose Julie's story of what happened between her and Mark and to determine that this was a poisoning that was the end of an abusive relationship um, and the sad unraveling of this marriage rather than a suicide um, intended to frame someone who had hurt Julie very deeply and was involved in an affair in revenge. And so that story became the set piece for the article that I wrote about how we know what jurors did when they were confronted with some conflicting facts and they had to make choices about which ones pointed them in the direction of an accurate verdict. Wow. It's a sort of stunning um, story in so many ways. Uh, And, you know, the the legal wrangling over uh, what to do with the letter, and that wrangling, I think, would have been significant even in the pre-Crawford universe where it would be dressed up entirely as a hearsay problem. Uh, you know, after Crawford, which disentangles confrontation from hearsay exceptions, you you wind up having to deal with Crawford even if you think there isn't a hearsay issue. Um, but this the- hearsay just being that there's someone uh- um, uh, saying something who's not in court for the for the truth of the matter, you know, and it's being admitted for right. the truth of what they're saying. Correct, a, yeah. a statement out of court admitted to prove its truth, and uh, which is sort of the classic definition of hearsay. And of course, but there are tons of exceptions to the hearsay rule. So the dying declaration being one of them that that Lisa mentioned. So the the legal wrangling, I mean, that's that's just sort of one layer here. But the the whole thing is just so tragic and stunning. And like you know, when I <laughs> I had not heard of this case, but when I read your description of it at the beginning of the article, I was just sitting there kind of stupefied because it's so, it's just so awful for, for like, no matter what the truth is, it's awful. Yeah. And it's, I mean, the basic question that we have to answer in something like this is like, what do we do with this guy who's still alive? Right. What do we do with this guy who, who may be a murderer and may not be right. Or and, may have just lost his wife to suicide. Right. I mean, exactly. I mean, yeah. and, and so you don't know. And the law, the law tells us that, you know, we assemble a jury of just everyday people and they're supposed to decide whether beyond a reasonable doubt he did it. Right. And and, you know, everyone knows that that framing. But um, and that's one thing we've been trying to work through. Like, what does that mean? And and as you point out, Lisa, I mean, they're, they're kind of what the jury has likely done is to try to decide between two competing narratives, which each seem to conform to 
I don't know, a certain kind of trope, right? I mean, yes, very much so. One of the things that caught my attention, I was, I came upon the case as an evidence professor and a lot of evidence professors had been commenting on the case and had noticed it. But what caught my attention about it was that the judge thinking that, that he was saying something clever said, you know, at one point, the trial, it was, there were a lot of very, very dark details about the relationship between them that came out of the trial. And the judge at one point said, wow, people who think that you can try a case from a script, they should read this transcript. And my immediate reaction was, I've seen parts of that transcript, and it is a script. It does read like a script. And, <laughs> right. and that's exactly what is so interesting about it. And it's not unique. There are you know many, many trials of its sort that you know, are, are getting increased attention as people are trying to pay, uh, you know, take a closer look at whether some of the wrongful convictions that have been re- revealed recently also, I'm, you know, whether or not Mark Jensen was wrongfully convicted, I think is remains sort of an open question, but there are many demonstrably wrongful convictions where, you know, DNA has revealed that the conviction is wrongful and you see very similar tropes uh, unfolding in the course of the trial. And prosecutors even after that evidence still committed to the idea that the person is guilty i mean despite all evidence it's almost like that narrative has a hold that that the facts will not loosen from the mind but i wonder uh you know being familiar with the facts of this of the jensen case um um i don't know to what degree you know that uh, all the nitty-gritty of of exactly what was put on as evidence but um this competing story that she was uh um mentally ill um you know depressed suicidal and had a, a kind of a head full of vengeance and so laid all of the pieces including the letter and discussions with uh i forget if it was a doctor or a friend that she uh told told this to I mean, so a police officer maybe i forget was a, she was friendly with a police officer to whom she had spoken and she'd also um talked to one of her children's teachers and another yeah. friend as well so this well, whole thing is then a frame she's then framing him for murder and her suicide is the final act in that framing is right that, including maybe going on the internet i don't know what all the Yes, exactly. I mean, okay. that's a possible narrative here, right? And what I'm just wondering is, um, uh, Lisa, from the way that you would look at the whatever you think beyond a reasonable doubt should be, is that story implausible or unreasonable? I mean, I'm wondering if there's any way under which we would ordinarily analytically understand beyond a reasonable doubt that the guilty verdict was sound. You know what I mean? I mean, I, I can understand like a conviction that the he killed her story is correct. I can understand someone feeling a conviction of that, feeling like that is the real story. But I'm struggling to understand, as I did in, in the serial uh, uh, example, how someone could discount uh, the competing narrative as totally implausible. In other words, as unreasonable. It'd be unreasonable to, to, to believe in that narrative. Is that the case here? Or do we just not know enough about the evidence? Or you know, how do you think about that? It's such an interesting question because it, it really gets to the heart of what it means to tell jurors that they need to make a decision beyond a reasonable doubt and whether the question that is posed to them is, are there any reasonable stories that are consistent with innocence? And if so, you have to acquit or are they being asked, do you view the narrative of guilt as a plausible one, as the most plausible one, in which case you should feel comfortable convicting? And, and of course, you know, we don't quantify the certainty for jurors by and large. And um, the standard is you know, given in the same instructions across most jurisdictions. And they, they have to, to, you know, to an extent, you know, they have to achieve that moral certainty uh, to whatever level moral certainty means to them. And it's a really difficult question what 
another way of thinking about it is uh, there's a lot of interest lately in the distinction between legal truth and factual truth and the these these external narratives of these cases that are getting more attention in popular culture i think really reveal that um, not that i think it matters one bit but i sort of think mark jensen poisoned his wife and i've heard lots of people say about the the story that underlies the serial podcast that at the end of it um, and i believe sarah canick said this too at the end although i haven't heard the her actual explication of this that there's a sense that somehow the defendant was indeed involved in in the death of the victim and right that's the, the and, and not everyone agrees about that and that's that's maybe why it could never be shown beyond a reasonable doubt but you can have you could even have a firm conviction that based on the the facts that you know and the way that they've unfolded with what you have access to that someone is is guilty but being guilty and being found guilty are not the same thing right. and accepting that is so is so important to be beginning the conversation about what level of accuracy we expect from trials and what kind of probability assessments fact finders are capable of and and how much quantum of proof we think there needs to be for a comfort level. Yeah, and that's what, I mean, this is what we talked about on the show where we responded to Nicholas's uh, email um, about reasonable doubt that, you know, given that, and I, you know, I, that jurors are assembling these narratives in their heads and, um, and given that, you know, sometimes they will, like all of us, their imaginations will fail to appreciate the narrative, which is in fact true, maybe. Um, uh, the, the juror at the moment uh, he or she is asked to um, to vote and render a verdict is facing a kind of tragic choice in, in cases like this, right? I mean, it's, you know, it, it, we don't know for sure whether this guy is guilty, right? But but if we don't convict him, this, you know, somehow it's, we, 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 we murder her all over again, right? And we put people at risk in the future for letting a dangerous person go go free. On the other hand, if we convict him, you know, he's an an innocent person convicted, and not and and not even you know we're not even sure he was involved, right? The the uncertainty is about whether he's completely innocent or completely guilty. And <laughs> and so part of you know, I, 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 part of me wonders like at what level of abstraction do we want jurors to think about this? To to what degree do we want them to feel connected to the ultimate? question of social sacrifice, individual sacrifice we require on behalf of society. To what degree should their minds be pointed toward the cost uh, uh, of an innocent person being uh, imprisoned, right? And because however you set that probability standard will affect how many innocent people will in fact be in jail or even even executed. And um, I don't know. I mean, that's the one thing I, you know, I think, uh, um, that maybe your article doesn't speak to, at least at, at this stage, uh, um, or at least your research doesn't, is to, to what degree, you know, I mean, you, you talk about ways to kind of de-bias the narrative structure and, and other things, but should jurors think about the, I don't know, I'm not making any sense, but... Um, well, you're not using the most vivid way to illustrate it with, that you've done in the past, which is to say, for example, what would it be like to instruct jurors that, you know, you shouldn't convict if you wouldn't be prepared to serve the sentence if it turned out to be a mistake. Right. Or, and, and then I, you know, abstracted that a little bit by saying, you know, to jurors, you should, you should not convict unless uh, you're willing, if you are wrong for there to be a lottery, which puts a random person in jail to finish the sentence or something like that. Right. I mean, which kind of brings home the sacrifice that they might be imposing um, the cost. But is that, is that kind of standard consistent with, 
does it completely conflict with the ju- with the way jurors arrive, like cognitively at truth? Is would there be some benefit to that? I mean, what do you I, think? Lisa? I think I think that it is, and I also think that it should be. So when you say something like jurors should only convict if they would, you know, be prepared to serve the sentence themselves if if they ultimately are in error, that that harkens back to that um, that older concept of empathy as feeling and of wanting the jurors to actually be able to put themselves in the position of the defendant or the victim or you know whoever it may be in the standard that you're trying to construct. And I am much more interested in them being able to dispassionately and accurately see rather than feel. I think that is so much more important. And so my my thinking about this has focused on how to invigorate analytic processes where intuition is actually endangering accuracy, where letting jurors react emotionally inhibits the fact-finding process. What, what you're describing is so interesting as well, because it is part of uh, the the way that the court has interacted with narrative theory a little bit. There's a, a, a canonical case in evidence law called Old Chief, um, which I talk about a little bit in the article, and, and in which the court recognizes that certain kinds of cases require a moral engagement by jurors, and that for both sides, both prosecution and defense, to be able to present a thorough case, they need to be able to tell stories so that that moral engagement is possible. And I think that's actually what you're trying to get at. It's a, it's a wonderful case because I, I think that it's the only case in evidence law about decreasing the distance that jurors have from evidence. Most evidence law is about excluding things so that jurors can be dispassionate. And Old Chief is about giving jurors more so that they can actually have an emotional response to and, evidence. And I'm trying to remember, but I also saw it in your article. I mean, this is a case about whether jurors should be told about past convictions and not just about the facts of past convictions, right? Because it was a felon in possession conviction, right? right? So if you, if you, you know, should, if you're, can, if you're prosecuting someone for being a felon in possession of a firearm, uh, should the jury, should the government be permitted to tell the jury what those felonies were? E- even if the defendant is willing to stipulate, fine, I was a felon. I want, I want your case, government, to be all about whether I was in possession, in effect, right? Right. And the government says, no, we want it to partly be about the, what your felonies were. Because we want the jury to know that you weren't convicted of writing bad checks, but that you hurt somebody. Right. Exactly. So that the jury can understand that there might be a, a moral reason why you would punish someone for possession and and that they might indeed be putting other people in danger and that there is some justification behind the government's prosecution. Of course, Old Chief is one of those cases substantially more famous for its reasoning than its holding because what the court held is that they couldn't get the (laughs) the details of the prior convictions and only the fact of a prior conviction um, because of the prejudicial nature of it and because of the nature of the offense, which is effectively strict liability and the government didn't, didn't really need what it wanted to introduce. But there is so much reasoning in the opinion about the richness of narrative and the importance of it in many cases. And I think it's a case that is helpful to defendants a lot of the time because it's not, it's much more often that the defendant is going to want to tell the jurors a story that will raise some moral uncertainty than that the prosecution is going to feel that it's essential that it be able to enact um, some 
you know, moral certainty on the other side. So it's, it's one of those cases that you know, the holding and the reasoning are, are in, not, not connected. Um, it's mostly known for its reasoning, but I think that it does go to what you were, you were talking about in terms of, I, I don't agree with your proposed standard and I know that you're not <laughs> proposing it as a serious standard. Um, but I know that the idea behind it is that you want jurors to be able to see the defendant's story and the way in which they are participating in, you know, that the trial is not just about events that took place before the trial started. It's a narrative about what's going to happen to the people who are at that trial mm. after it ends. Right, and I think yeah. that's what you're getting at. Well, my, my thought with the bet is that, um, is that it, it helps the jury to see the peril uh, uh, that, that is inherent in a, in a trial, right? And, and motivates them to, you know, if, if someone tells, if someone tells you, you know, unless you can tell us what happened here, you're going to go away for a long time. You're highly motivated, right? To identify plausible narratives that are inconsistent with your own guilt, right? And my sense is that, you know, we need a way to motivate the jury to be more imaginative, um, not, not and again, and imaginative in the way that you mean, not not imaginative in terms of coming up with fanciful stories and and being willing to believe things which are unreasonable. Um, but you need some way of internalizing that peril so that you motivate the jury to do that. I'm thinking like you know maybe not as going as far as like a twelve angry men scenario, but there you've got like a juror who is who is you know almost dead set on getting telling a story which is the truth and being unsatisfied with the gaps in, in, in knowledge. And, uh, and that, I get the sense, you know, when I hear interviews with jurors after serial, for example, and they talk about, well, we, you know, when he didn't take the stand, we wondered, you know, why, why, you know, and they were almost angry that they couldn't, they, they weren't being told the full story. And, and I hear all of that. And I just, I couldn't believe that if they themselves or someone that they loved was, was in similar peril, that they would be so willing to, you know, so willing to believe uh, in the truth of the story that they appear to agree on beh- uh, beyond a reasonable doubt. Um, so that's really what, it, you know, it's like, again, it's like putting, giving them a sense of peril, giving them a sense of a reason to exercise their imaginations in the empathetic sense in which you uh, defined imagination. I think that's right. I think that stories animate the convictions that jurors have about the facts, but I think the convictions themselves ought to come from other places. And that's where the analytic processing and, you know, the, 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 one of the things that the article talks about is the coexistence of associative and analytical reasoning, the kind of emotional response with the rational response or the subjective, I can put myself into this story with the objective, I'm going to weigh the probabilities between the two stories type of reasoning. Um, so I agree with you that I, the, one of the reasons I think narrative is so powerful, never going away and not all by itself something to be worried about is that it does animate the kind of imagination, the kind of empathy, the kind of certainty that you want fact finders in the criminal justice process to have. But the convictions that it is allowing them to put into action with their verdict should be coming from from a different place. And that's the place where they're doing what some scholars have called inferential reasoning or comparative plausibility. Um, they're doing, you know, Bayesian updating, whatever the probabilistic form of reasoning 
that you want to alight upon might be. And there's, I, I argue that it's a hybrid of all different sorts of things. And it's quite difficult to right. categorize. Like they're not, they're not weighing, you know, as each element of the case is presented, they're not deciding which is 50% more likely and then moving on. Um, it's, you know, the, the thing that we know is that evidence all interacts with each other in this very fluid process. So yeah. there's this constant retelling of the story, which again is something that we're seeing vividly in the popular culture versions of these very sophisticated popular culture versions of true crime, where we see that sort of retelling and we understand the way in which you reweigh all these plausible details as you add more to it. It's a very fluid process. Do, do you want the jurors? I mean, do you want this process? And I don't know if this is accurate or not, but do you want the jurors over the course of the trial to be as, as a new piece of evidence is introduced to be discarding stories that don't fit, uh, maybe um, uh, creating new stories that they didn't see before that the evidence uh, unlocks and, and, and updating their sense of the plausibility of the narratives that, that remain. And then at the end of the trial, figuring out whether there are plausible narratives consistent with innocence, and if so, acquitting. Is, is that the process that you think would be ideal or or? And if so, like, how would you instruct the jurors or uh, either during the trial and, and at the, and at the um, stage of uh, deliberation? And, and, and if not, like, how else should it work? I think that what I think that the first part of what you said is exactly right. And, and I think that in terms of what it portends for how you would conduct a trial, I think the most important insight is that what we learn from narrative and what we learn from the way in which social science is increasingly explaining juror decision-making is that it's very, very hard to excise any one piece of evidence from a given trial because it interacts with everything else that's in there. And the jurors are individual thinking beings who bring pre-existing conceptions into the deliberative process, and they're not going to be the same for across jurors. So it's, it's with the impossibility of predicting how any one piece of evidence interacted with other evidence or will interact with other evidence. There are lots of standards that some of which I just begin to touch on in the article and I'm working on another context too, like when the prosecution needs to be giving exculpatory evidence to defendants pre-trial under the Brady standard or what you do about errors that occur when a piece of evidence the jury heard but shouldn't have heard can't be unsaid. So those sorts of considerations, I think, have to account for your description, which is exactly right in that as the trial unfolds, it builds and pieces of evidence build on each other and some will become less significant and some more significant as the sequence continues. And the way that trial process and procedure is currently appears in a lot of the rules doesn't account for that holistic sort of unfolding. And, I, and I, yeah, I take one of your suggestions is that if, if something, you know, if there's a piece of evidence that the judge has to tell the jury to disregard, you'd be in favor of the judge being more expressive with that, right? I Absolutely. Mean, yeah. Yeah. And doing it in advance, right? Like saying before we, you're about to hear something that, or, uh, or I'm, I, I think you said in the paper. Oh, either way, either way. Yeah. Whether it's introducing evidence and trying to frame how it should be used, or if something came out that shouldn't have expressing why, you know, more about why it should be disregarded. Yeah. Cause some of it will, some of it you, you won't have been able to plan for, but to the degree right. that you, you knew a witness was going to be uh, providing testimony that was admissible for one purpose only and not for another that you, worry a jury might use it for 
that it would be better to say to the jury before they hear the evidence. Now, you know, something about, look, this is for this one purpose and not for this other. And and the reason that this other one isn't permitted is because it's unreliable in certain ways. And so you need to be cautious about it to make sure you don't get duped by that unreliability. This is the sort of thing a court might say. Do I have that right, Lisa? Yes, you do. And it's exactly for the reason that otherwise... If they're told long after the fact, they've already put that evidence into their calculus, into the plausibility. It's already affected all the evidence that came before and continues to affect the evidence that came after. So it's too late a lot of the time to tell them at the end that um, they should, when they construct the narrative that's meaningful to them as they listen to the facts of the case, that they shouldn't have done it the way they did it. It's way, their, their pathways laid down along the way in the trial process. And it's way too late most of the time when we explain to them why certain sorts of evidence shouldn't be considered for one purpose. It's hard enough to follow that instruction, but it's impossible to do it after the fact. Well, it'd be like looking at a cake and saying, oh, you know, that was the wrong egg yolk. You got to get that egg yolk out of that cake. I'm like, wait a minute. (laughs) How could I do that? It's in the cake. When the, when the judge issues a warning, um, do, do you think he or she should talk in terms of narrative? Like, uh, you know, it, 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 in that more expressive warning, like, uh, you know, you're going to hear this evidence for one purpose um, that uh, you, you should be very cautious about not using it for this other purpose, because people tend to uh, infer people tend to um, hear evidence like this and imagine that the following things have happened. Whereas we know from experience and maybe talk that, in fact, that's often misguided. People often make mistakes about that. So I'm warning you to be very careful, right, not to. Uh, infer a story from this thing, which is in the following way. I, I'm, you know, I'm not saying it <laughs> well at all, but is would you want the judge to talk in terms of narrative or in terms of probabilities with these warnings and this more expressive warning? That's a really interesting idea. I haven't thought much about drafting instructions that would speak to the jurors' own thought processes. I think it would take a very artful judge to do that well. I certainly think it would be valuable. It's more the sort of thing that one hopes in the idealized version of the deliberative process that occurs between jurors when they reinforce for each other, as they do in some clinical reenactments of what jury deliberations look like. But of course, we don't have very many of those uh, to rely on. Um, I like that idea, I think what's happening more and what's maybe more realistic is that jurors are getting information about the quality of the of the inputs. It's harder to instruct them because they're different as individuals about their output and you know mm. how their own thinking should be, but they're learning things increasingly about the unreliability of eyewitness testimony, which uh, you know has uh, there's this durable idea that eyewitnesses are never going to get a face wrong. And that's simply not true. And the more that jurors are helped to understand that there might indeed be some flaws in eyewitness testimony or in forensic testimony, um, in DNA evidence, in things like forms of lie detection, there, there is fairly good information about how useful that sort of instruction is. So I'm a big proponent of pre-instructions. And I especially like the idea of letting them know how valuable something might be and what its potential flaws are before they hear it. Yeah, just to be a little, you know, even more direct about it, uh, you know, we talked to actually Ryan Kahlo about robotics law uh, several weeks ago, and um, and he something came up in that conversation which matches up with um, kind of a larger jurisprudence theory that I'm working on about about the nature of law, and and part of that has to do with information flows through institutions. But the in robotics, like the sense think act paradigm is is well known, right? That you've got to 
something which uh, senses information and then thinks about it somehow cogitates on that information and then acts based on the information and and of course this uh this paradigm is is uh, a paradigm which applies to information flow between arbitrary institutions right and or or individuals and one way of affecting action of an institution is to uh, change the information coming into it, which is exactly what the rules of evidence are supposed to do. Uh, warnings are kind of like giving metadata. Like, I'm going to tell you about the information that you're about to receive, right? And, and so you're trying to affect uh, um, uh, the way they receive the information. And I guess my suggestion was to try to operate on the think part, right? By providing information, not just about the information that they're receiving directly and its quality, but to to tell them a little bit more about how people typically cogitate on that information, right? And, and to try to guide that thought process, which I think ultimately is what the, the final instruction is, right? The instruction about reasonable doubt is, and, and maybe that comes too late in the trial, right? This is the, the instruction about how you're supposed to um, think about all the information that you have sensed uh, in order to act properly. And um, how, okay, so I've said a lot, but I wonder how you would, um, ultimately shape that final instruction? And would you put it at the beginning? And would you tell them what reasonable doubt is in the context of narrative? And um, do, do we do a good job already? You know, wh- what do you think about this? I think it's such a great question. I'll, it's not something that I'm sort of thinking about it for the first time as we're having this discussion. I love the idea of metacognition for jurors. Um, <laughs> I haven't, I'm imagining a project with a title of that sort. And um, I don't, I have mixed feelings about the effort to define reasonable doubt. Um, Of course, it's not even permitted in in a lot of jurisdictions. And I think that the resistance to it is represents a sort of failure to know what it really means uh, for anyone. And um, the, you know, so I don't know, I still would, I'm resistant to a quantitative approach to defining reasonable doubt, but not to the idea that you would give jurors some tools for understanding the task that they have. And really their decision-making process, it's just, it's a collective one, but it isn't that much different from what judges have to go through. And lots of studies indicate that that judges are subject to similar heuristic biases as jurors. And I think judges could engage in a freer, more, as you say, expressive, more informative discussion with jurors about potential distortions in their thinking about cases. And judges should know because they're decision makers every day. And they're increasingly familiar with the ways in which sometimes their own decisions go astray. So I think it's a really interesting idea. It's very challenging how you would, in our current trial procedure, where you would put it and how you would conduct it, telling jurors in advance how certain they ought to be about the evidence, I think you would you would encounter real resistance from potentially from both sides. I think in the criminal justice process. Well, I wonder if you could tell them, you know, in advance, uh, you know, what's going to happen here is you you all are going to hear evidence first put on by one side and then the other side. And this evidence, uh, and as you hear this evidence, your um, ideas about what might have happened, the various uh, the various stories that you might think consistent with the evidence will change over time. And at the end of all the evidence, uh, you know, we will talk again, but I will instruct you 
to render a verdict of, of, of innocence, to acquit, if among these stories which remain, um, a, uh, um, a story consistent with innocence is plausible, so that it would be unreasonable, uh, or, or that it, a story that, uh, yeah, something like, I don't know. No, I'm, you said it right. You were, doing it right? It very, yeah. you were doing it very well. I was, I'm, I'm glad someone's recording this. That actually sounded, <laughs> <laughs> that sounded really good. Um, yeah, I mean, it makes a lot of sense, what you said. I don't know if, if in every courtroom that that will, would work, but it does indeed make sense, and I think is consistent with both the law and theory of what's supposed to happen. But it's radical. It's radical because it would replace reasonable doubt in a way. It's also not enough in the sense that as Lisa's paper lays out at a few points, you need things along the way. It's not, uh, it's not even enough just to do it at the beginning, right? right? You need, you need things that happen along the way because in part, because they have to be tailored to the particulars of the trial event itself, what's being offered, why it might be problematic. Right. Um, and also simply because it's an event that unfolds over sometimes a substantial amount of time. I think one of the things that one of the one of the hurdles that such an approach faces um, is it is I suspect is that in this in the Anglo-American tradition, this will feel to judges and to the lawyers in front of them that this is ju- this is judicial interference, right? That the yeah. the judge is actually trying to interfere with the fact finding, not facilitate better fact finding. It will feel like you're putting judge, you you keep putting your thumb on the scale. Will you just shut the hell up, right? So right. that I can do my job as the advocate. This is supposed to be driven by us, not by you. You're this is feeling more inquisitorial because you're talking so much. Well, do you, yes, I, 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 get I that, feel like there but, would be some real resistance just on that ground alone. But do you know what I think the resistance will mainly be? I think that. Um, uh, if we really applied this kind of plausibility standard, if we really applied reasonable doubt in the sense of would you be, you know, would you be willing to take at least the abstract bet? Here, right. There'd be a lot fewer convictions. There'd be a lot fewer convictions <laughs> and a lot more people would be guilty. Whereas the current standard, like the the fiction, and you talk about legal fictions in the piece too, Lisa, which is really interesting. But the the fiction uh, is that nobody goes to jail unreasonably, right? Uh, 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 there is... Everybody goes to jail. We just don't have any reasonable doubts about their about their um, about their guilt. And yes, we're going to get a few innocent people. That's a tragedy. But it's you know they're going to be very very few. Where the truth is, right, that jurors seem to be operating almost on a preponderance standard a lot of times, right? And it's almost like, do I believe the story that I find? Like, it, which story do I find most likely? Do I am I convinced of this? And almost the worse the crime the bigger the harm about letting this person off. And so if I really think that this person is guilty, I have to convict because look how bad it would be if they, you know, if I, if I let them off and, and this, the nebulous nature of the reasonable doubt standard, I think allows us, you know, uh, psychologically to think that we have the best of all worlds where in fact we are making choices by not defining that standard, by giving the jurors this power to, uh, to convict based on, on, on conviction about a story. Um, uh, we are, we are making a decision about sacrifice again. Like we're making a decision about you know uh, who and and under what circumstances people will bear the burden of getting guilty people off the streets. And I would just like it to see us be more honest about that in a way. You know, if people really do want to convict people based on a sixty percent type threshold or sixty percent confidence in the story or what you know, however you you phrase it, um, I think we're fundamentally like dishonest about it. And maybe it's a tragic choices type problem all over again but 
I don't know. At least I, I feel like the plausibility story, again, like you said, Joe, reinforced throughout the trial and then again at the end. Like if you can tell a plausible story consistent with innocence and you're you're priming the jurors constantly to then be thinking to about acquit. that. Right. That that at least is consistent with what we say our aspirations are about uh, criminal conviction, but it may not be what we want, uh, or at least what some people want. So there, there are two things that are um, problematic, and one thing that I think is incredibly useful about what you just said. So I'm going to continue to, <laughs> I'm going to continue to resist. At least I have one. <laughs> I, yes, uh, many more than that, but in this particular, <laughs> this particular moment, I have to take exception with you. So one, I continue to resist this impulse, though I am sympathetic to it that you want the jurors to have this personalized stake in the outcome somehow. And I know that's not exactly what you mean. I know you're trying to just quantify certainty in a way that's really compelling, but I think it's a little bit dangerous. I I don't actually favor reforms to instructions that push jurors in the direction of more feeling, more emotion, more uh, sort of personal engagement. I think that's actually going in the wrong direction. I don't think we're lacking for that in the way that the trial exists now. So I, I would just rephrase the way in which you want to raise the stakes there and back off maybe a little bit this idea that you want jurors to feel like they would be willing to substitute their loved ones uh, for the person in jeopardy in the criminal justice system. There's something that just doesn't feel right about that to me. Um, what and and I'm also resistant to the percentage of, to any sense that that one can or that anyone does successfully quantify reasonable doubt. It's kind of an old chestnut, you know what what it is, and there's lots of scholarship on it, and it's ill defined, and a lot of jurors wish it were better defined when when they're able to express what was difficult for them about a trial. So I agree that the effort to think about what it means and to convey it more accurately is important. I don't ultimately think that when that happens, it's going to be in quantitative terms. The third part of it, though, I think is exactly right. And you're speaking to a moment. I think we're at a really important moment in criminal procedure where we know that there are innocents who are wrongfully convicted. And this has been speculative for decades, for centuries there's been a debate about you know how many guilty would we be happy to see go free in exchange for not convicting that one innocent person and there's been endless speculation about that but there's also been a fair bit of skepticism about whether it's a real problem as you say there's right. this sign and and it's a real problem yeah. and the what what i think of as the new empirical moment in criminal procedure scholarship you cannot ignore anymore the actual we don't even know what the actual number of wrongfully convicted people is, but we have a real beginning number, a baseline that is too high. So we know that it's a real problem. We can point to specific cases, actual causes, and failings in the criminal justice system. And the merger of the empiricism about those numbers of wrongfully convicted people that that really is a, a product of the DNA revolution in criminal law with social scientists who are thinking more and more about decision-making under uncertainty and heuristic biases and this relationship between analytic and associative processes, it's a real opportunity. And I think it's going to create new scholarship about how we deal with these procedural issues, given what we understand that we did not understand or have information about very, very recently. There are wrongfully convicted people. They exist in significant numbers, and you cannot deny that anymore. And the way that people make decisions is different 
from what we thought it was when a lot of these rules were laid down. And when you take those two things together, it's time for some new thinking. And one of the areas for new thinking is clearly the formulation and expression of the reasonable doubt standard, although I don't have much expertise on the standard itself to offer. I don't see how we improve on that. So, no. Yeah. I thank you, Lisa, for for deepening the connection between oral argument and the wonderful Duke University Law School. Uh, <laughs> thank you very much for having me. It was th- fun. Yeah, this has been really this great. great. And I, I hope you'll come again. Uh, this is the smartest I'm going to feel all day. I'm dead sure of it. Like, I'm never going to feel the rest of the day as smart as I do right now Well, that's because, because of listening to her. That's because when we get off the, uh, the, the line with Lisa, it'll just be me here talking to you. Exactly. And you will, <laughs> I'm, I'm going to plummet again. <laughs> it's terrible. <laughs> well, thank you. I really I learned a lot from our conversation as well. A lot to think about. Thank you Thanks very so much. much. Thanks a lot, Lisa. We'll talk to you later. Thank you. Great to talk to you guys. Bye-bye. Bye. Well. Wow.